how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind that each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my presence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will, to work for his good pleasure. Amen. Amen. In the book of Exodus, chapter 3, Moses is a shepherd, and he is in what we now call the southern part of Sinai. They call it Mount Horeb as well. And he was there, and he sees a bush aflame with fire. But as he looks at this bush that's full of fire, he sees it's not being burnt up. So he starts to look at it more seriously, and then he hears God speaking to him, saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses replies, here I am. And God says to him, do not come near Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Do you ever feel that as you read a passage of scripture, that you are standing on holy ground? Of course, all reading of scripture is like standing on holy ground. But this particular passage, which we have read affects me much more in this way. I see, I feel so moved that I feel 
Who can expound it faithfully? How can I do justice to it? Now, really, it should be Roger or Faith or Debbie or Steve who is speaking today. But unfortunately for you, I got the short straw. In my passage, the, in, in my Bible, sorry, in the passage is read, Be like Christ. I became a committed Christian in the first term of my first year at university. There was an evangelistic mission being led by um, a minister who's now died, but called the Reverend John Scott. Stott, not Scott, Reverend John Stott. And I went forward on the last day of the mission. Now, what happened was on this mission, each college had a, um, a, a, a missioner who was there, and I was invited by uh, Christian students to come to this. And um, we spoke together and talked together. And um, this missioner said to me, I don't think you're a Christian. And I said to him, what, me? I've been to boarding school, and we used to go to church twice every Sunday. In the, in the morning service, we went to an Anglican church, and in the afternoon, the headmaster, who was a Methodist, used to run a more informal church in our um, school hall. And um, it was compulsory for boarders to go, but we also got visitors, and we used to get girls coming, and um, that was one of the... <laughs> prime attractions of going to this. <clears throat> so I used to go to church twice every Sunday, and then when I was on holidays or from school, my mother used to take my brother and me to church. And after school, I went into, um, I went into the Air Force. It was compulsory for men to do two years' service then. And so I went into that. And when I was on the Air Force base on a Sundays, I would always go... Um, to the church on the college, sorry, not the college, on the Air Force base. And, um, and sometimes in the evening I would go into the town and go to church. And I was the only one from the group of us who, who were studying in the Air Force to, um, to go to church. And I said, what, me, not a Christian? And he said, no, I don't think you are a Christian. Anyway, another student invited me to go to on the very first day of John Stott's mission, and I, found, I listened to preaching like I'd never, ever heard before. And on the last day of the mission, I went forward and he prayed for me, and I committed my life to the Lord. And of course, immediately after that, Christian friends got round and, and saw this late beginner, and they wanted to make sure he didn't fully sink. And so they, they kept going with me, and they helped me, and they became my friends, and we did things together. Sometime later, while I was a student, still in that first term, I was walking past um, a paperback bookshop. There was one shop in the town that basically sold paperbacks. And there in the, in the window, they had this book um, called The Imitation of Christ. I'd never even heard of it before. It was by an author called Thomas Akempis, and there it was, as a sort of a penguin book, I think it was in those days. And uh, I, I thought, well, that's what I want to do. Um, so I went and bought this book. And um, I found it was excellent. And I was reading it, and I was in that sort of thing, that when I thought there was a, a really good sentence, I'd um, put a pencil line under it. 
And if I think, thought it was specially good, I'd put an asterisk in the margin. And if I thought it was absolutely brilliant, I'd put three asterisks. So I read this book and marked it all up, and then it went onto my bookshelf, and I didn't read it again for 35 years. And uh, 35 years later, I took this book off my bookshelf, and I decided I'm going to read this again. And the thing that I found is the things that I marked with three asterisks when I'd just become a Christian, I still thought were brilliant. And the things that I marked with one asterisk I thought were good. And the, the underlined sentences were good. And I was saying this to a, a, in Ichthus to a fellow Christian leader. And he said, looked at me and he said, David, that shows just how little progress you've made in the last 35 years. Verse 1 reads, if there is any encouragement in Christ, do you receive encouragement from the Lord? Do you receive it from the Lord's servants? In about, um, when Anne and I first moved to Beckenham in 1973, we used to go to the Anglican church in the center of Beckenham. Well, um, it was very, fairly close to our house, and we went there. And after we'd been there two or three years, somebody suggested to the vicar of the church that myself and a, a younger man than me should be put forward for readership, or what's called lay readers or reader in the church, where you could do things like preaching and teaching, but you weren't allowed to lead communion services. You could do pretty well anything that a, a normal ordained minister could do, except you couldn't lead the communion, you could assist. And uh, the church took an hour to debate the council as to whether this young man and I were fit to go forward for this, but they, they actually voted that both of us should go forward. Now, at that time, I was busy. I had three children. I'm trying to work out what ages they were. They were probably about mm, 12 and 10 and, um, and 8 or something like that. Anne was working. Um, life was actually very busy. As any of you parents who've got young children would know. And, I was, and they would send me, uh, uh, sorry, uh, we were attached to Rochester Diocese, all the attached to a cathedral. And, and because we were so long range, the qualification was that you had to write 13 essays. They sent you the topics, they sent you reading lists, and you had to write an essay. I think it was meant to be between about 4,000 and 5,000 words, so it was a fairly thing. And with my fairly busy, because I was fairly busy at work too, I found it very difficult to get the time to, to do all this reading and thing. And after one year, I'd done one essay, and my fellow guy who was doing the course, he was a young, um, unmarried at that time, living at home with his parents, um, He'd done about six. And uh, I was sitting in the church prayer meeting once, and um, a, a woman came up, and she sat next to me, and her husband had been on the council that voted for me to go, to go forward. And she came and said to me, how are you getting on with your lay readership? And I told her I'd just done one essay, and I was on the point of giving up. And she said to me, that would be a great pity. Sorry, I'm feeling emotional, but she said, I think you've got something to say. 
and you should say it. I couldn't believe that this woman would say that to me. And then, just two or three days later, um, a woman who was a nurse, and she was married to a doctor, and they'd been missionaries in uh, Burundi, and they'd come back. She said to me, David, you know those essays that you're supposed to type up? If you'll write them in longhand, I'll type every one of them up for you. That got me excited. <laughs> I did the next 12 essays, like one a month. And the, um, the last essay, the 13th essay, th they gave me the topic Christian marriage. You had to write an essay about Christian marriage. And Anne said to me, she said, they're never going to fail you now. You've passed the first 12. Don't do any reading whatsoever. <laughs> Just write what you think about Christian marriage. <laughs> and so I did. Now, normally I was getting about between 14 and 16 out of 25 for each essay, right? Just passing. I got the highest score for this essay when I didn't do any reading that I, I got from the whole lot. Just want to say what encouragement can do. It's often easy to think if you encourage people that they may be, particularly if you do it from flattery, it may hinder them. I have all my life believed that the risks of, of so encouraging people that it might harm them are much less from the fact that people don't get encouragement. And so right through my engineering career, wherever I saw anyone who'd done good work that I thought was a thing, I always wanted to speak to them, encourage them, and tell them. I was um, this week at, a, at Anne's home where... Um, they got um, an Australian singer, young woman, I should think, about 35, who was singing to this group of um, patients, all with dementia. And it, I was sitting there because Anne was there, and I was sitting in the back with her. And it, it was like someone trying to sing to a group of dead people. You know, there was just no response. And this girl, I said girl, she's probably a woman of 35 to 40 anyway, she was a very good Australian singer and she was singing songs one after the other to them. And just before I left, um, I said to her, I think you were really very good. And she almost broke down and said, oh, thank you, because she was getting no response whatsoever. I mean, not that they could do anything to respond. They, they'd all got dementia, and, and, and it was serious. So please, please, do encourage people. If you, if you get... Jesus wants us as his servants to be acting like he is, and he was so encouraging. He took the disciples, and he took them from being fishermen into being world changers. Do encourage. Paul goes on to say, when we are going through, um, he says, if there is any consolation of love, when we are going through tough times, who do we turn to? Firstly, of course, to Jesus but then also to a brother or sister. We need to have people who, who understands and whom we can trust. I did something that was very wrong 
perhaps lots of things that were very wrong, but one that actually burdened me greatly. And I went to a, I, I didn't do anything. Anne knew about it, and, and I went to a Christian leader, and he listened to me, and he went right through it, and then he asked me to confess, and then he said, I pronounce forgiveness on you. And after that, I'd, I'd carried it, I think, probably for 10 or 15 years, and I didn't ever have any problem again. And I had to do the same something to someone in Afghanistan who came to me now, and he said he'd done something very, very wrong, and uh, I, I took much harder than the other guy. I said to him, right, I want you to go and write down everything you've done wrong, and then bring it to me, and then I want you to read it to me, and then I pronounced forgiveness on him, and I took his sheet of paper with all the things he'd done wrong and tore it up and said, and we burnt it and, and said, that's the We need to have people that we can go to, to. We need, to, obviously, primarily to go to the Lord, but Christian brothers and sisters are there to help us and to take us through into a new position. And then Paul goes on to say, do you experience in your relationship with Jesus fellowship of the Spirit, affection, compassion? These are the things that the Lord wants us. Then Paul is saying that within the church we should be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. These should be the hallmarks of a church. And I believe that we find them here in Forest Hill. And if you don't find them, then you need to go and talk to Debbie or one of the other prayer planning leaders and say what you're finding because the church wants to build up a people who are closer and closer to the Lord. And um, Paul goes on to say, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And he's going into a phrase where he's doing do's and don'ts, you know, do's and don'ts. In the um, early 1970s, um, there's, there was an organization called OPEC, which is the, um, the Oil Producers Export Committee, I think, right? Exporting Committee. And what they did in the early 1970s is they put the price up of petroleum oils from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel which fourfold increase in the price of oil, this had a, an enormous effect on all the economies in the world. And it had a serious effect on the British economy because lots of construction projects that the government was going to um, get the company I worked for to do were all cancelled by the government. They couldn't afford it. And while um, countries that imported oil had disastrous effect on their thing. The oil-producing countries had a vast increase in their profits and money. And so what they started to do was build loads of infrastructure. So countries like Saudi Arabia started building roads and bridges and dams and water supply and sewerage and all the major infrastructure projects. And what you got was a flood of American and Europe, sorry, I'm not been looking to you at all. I've just got to get this body of mine moving. 
So what I've... Um, <laughs> now, I don't mean just you, Ricky. I'm in this side. <laughs> this should be there, but... <laughs> um, sorry, what was I saying? They grew so rich, and all these people, trained people from all over Europe and from America, were moving in to the Middle East. And um, I was one of them who was asked to go out and do quite a lot of work in, in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And... Um, Saudi Arabia decided to build two big, enormous industrial estates, one on the east coast of Saudi Arabia and one on the west coast. The east coast one was called Jubail, and the west coast one was called Yanbu. And what they thought was, there's going to be a time when our, royal, sorry, our oil runs out. We need to have industrial estates that are making product that, that will still make our people profitable. And we won a contract um, to go and do work on this Jubail. We got the contract to design water supply, wastewater treatment, industrial effluent treatment, and deal with solid waste. It was a very, very uh, major contract that we won. And so I was being asked to fly out to Saudi Arabia. And um, at that time, because of the huge flux of foreigners coming into countries, their existing systems couldn't cope. So that if you wanted to get a driving license, a Saudi driving license, you couldn't do the test for months and months and months. Because they, they to, I mean, the test was relatively easy, much easier than a British oh, driving license, you know, to, the driving test for British people, much easier than that, but you couldn't get the license because they, they'd got no time to test you. And so what happened in, in that was there's very little public transport in those days. People used to drive um, without um, sorry, they would have had British driving licenses and you can get international driving licenses, but the Saudi police didn't recognize them. So even if you had them, that, was, that wasn't good enough. You had to have a Saudi license. Now, first of all, I want to say to you that I like Americans, right? I have visited um, the USA several times. I've met Americans. I've been to their churches. I've worked with uh, Americans. I even worked with one consultant called AMBRIC, which stood for American and British Consultants. We were doing a major job in Egypt under AMBRIC, and I think 50% of the staff were um, Americans. And, 50 and we used to live in a staff house, and so I genuinely like Americans. I have found them very generous, very kind, very hospitable, particularly, and um, nice to work with. But there is a caricature of an American, the sort who, I think it's often because they don't feel content in themselves, so they then feel extra proud of the fact that they are Americans. And so they want to tell everyone that America is the greatest country in the world, we've got the biggest this, the biggest that, the biggest that, right? And they like to say it in a loud voice and make sure you're listening to them because they belong to this, they are one of these people who's part of the greatest country in the world, etc. Now, I was flying from London to 
Dharan, which is on the east coast of um, the commercial airport on the east coast of Saudi Arabia. And we had one of these American caricatures, as I call them, who was in our plane. And he was going around and talking loudly and talking to everyone that, um, you know, that they were the greatest. And I was sort of sitting back hoping he wouldn't come near me. I, I, I didn't want to get into a conversation with him. But just as we were due to land at Dharan, he came up to me. And he said, where are you going to in Saudi Arabia? And I said, I'm going to Jubail, which is this big industrial state. It's about uh, 55 to 60 miles north of the airport um, that we were landing at. And I, he said to me, how are you going to get there? And I said, well, I've got a, a person who works for our firm who's coming to pick me up at the airport and, and drive me there. And uh, he said to me, can I come with you? Because I'm going to Jubail too. And everything in me wanted to say no. And the other reason why I wanted to say no was that the person who was coming to pick me up was someone who had been at the same university at the same time as me, who'd read engineering at the same time as me, and we had been um, both doing the same course, of a not very large course, and he had joined the same firm as me, and we'd both been there 15 years on different projects. And this was the guy who was my friend who was coming to pick me up. And I thought, what's he going to think of me taking this very loudmouthed, boastful American with me? But then as I thought about it, I thought, I can't say no to this guy. I've got to say, I said, yes, yes, you can come. And uh, so when we got off the airport, my, drive, drive, my colleague came to me and picked me up. And um, he said, um, he, I think he looked a bit askance at me that I was bringing this guy. But anyway, we were driving. We'd been driving about 20 miles, and there was um, a queue of cars. And my friend who was driving said to me, David, I think we're going to be in trouble. The Saudi police are doing a check on all vehicles, and I don't have a driving license. I don't have a Saudi driving license. And then this American from the back of the car piped up, I've got a Saudi driving license, he said. <laughs> he said, what I'll do is I'll swap seats with you, I'll drive us through the, um, the, the police block, get through, then in a mile or two afterwards you can come back and drive the car. Now I, I leave you to, uh, to determine the morality <laughs> of, of what we did. But what we did was we did get through and, um, and it worked okay. And I don't know whether it was the Lord helping me because of my unselfishness or not. But we are meant to be, as Paul keeps saying, unselfish. Um, Paul says that with humility of mind, let each of you consider one another as more important than himself or herself. You know the phrase, it takes more skill than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It's very easy to have jealousy of people who others think are more gifted than you, or whom others think are more gifted than you are, when they may not be more gifted than you are. It's very easy for jealousy to come. And jealousy is so corrosive. You need to guard it with everything in your life. And even if you look at somebody and think, why are they chosen and why am I not? Or, 
Uh, you've got to guard against it. And Paul is saying, with humility of mind, let each of you consider one another as more important than you are. We then move on to, um, it's, it's like a hymn between verses 5 and 11. Some commentators think that this was a hymn that the early Christians used to sing, and Paul incorporated it here, but others think that Paul actually wrote this. But it's, we don't know, but it's down as in, in Paul's letter. And Paul is writing about Jesus, and he is saying, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave made in the likeness of men. I read an article in yesterday's newspaper, and it was about a, a Second World War flying ace hero. And um, somebody wrote a biography. He was somebody who lost his legs in a flying accident and then had... Uh, artificial legs fitted to him, and he became, an, the RAF in this war allowed him to fly, and he became um, a flying ace, right? And he, um, he, he became a prisoner of war. And this, and a book was written called, uh, about him, an autobiography after the Second World War, called, um, oh golly, what was the book called? Um, Reach for the Sky, that was it was called, for this flying, it's Reach for the Sky. And in fact, uh, when my brother was seeking entrance to a medical school in London, at the interview, he was asked, um, what books do you read? And he said, I've just recently read Reach for the Sky. And the, the doctors who were interviewing thought he'd been reading about cowboys and Indians. <laughs> but he still, got, he still got offered a place at this medical school. Anyway, now... I read this book, and it was the best-selling hardback book after the Second World War. Um, Reach for the Sky became incredibly popular, and it was a, really a biography of this writer. But in yesterday's newspaper, this is this thing. Um, his name was Barder, and he says, Barder was a supremely brave man, but he was also a monster. Arrogant, domineering, selfish, and spectacularly rude. Although most of his contemporaries admired him, many also loathed him. The war made him famous and insufferable. Bullying, lonely, foul-mouthed, and aggressive, he was a far cry from the character depicted in Reach for the Sky, Even by the standards of the time, Barda's political and racial views were extreme. He praised apartheid in South Africa, supported the white minority regime in Rhodesia, favored the return of the death penalty, and opposed all immigration. And then it talks about the person who'd served him while he was a prisoner in Colditz Castle of how he had abused him in so many ways and not considered him at all. 
Now, we have this picture, the one that you read, of somebody great. And then you read, I mean, this is written by a sort of a, a historian who's, who's been looking into the facts and figures. And we see, the thing about Jesus is you never see that. You never, whatever you think, he is, he, he didn't ever seem to want to put himself first. Though he, he was equal of, um, like of the same nature as God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, taking the form of a slave being made in the likeness of men. Therefore, it said, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. It was too barbaric for anyone who was a Roman citizen to be crucified. They used it for people of other nations as their method of execution. Very painful, barbaric thing. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. And then Paul goes on into the last two verses. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only as in my present, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. What is work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Do you think it means that you can lose your salvation and you've got a need to work on it to make sure you get it through? I want to tell you a very simple illustration. You may think, oh, it's very childish, but it helped me a lot. I want you to imagine that you're on the, the seaside, right, and you're standing with a group of friends watching, and you see a man who's out at sea, and you suddenly see he's got into difficulties and he is drowning. And then the lifeboat is launched and it goes out to collect him. And when you see that they've pulled the man from the sea, what do the, the, the watchers say? They say, he's saved, right? On the voyage of when the lifeboat is coming back from where the man was to the shore, they say he is being saved. And when he actually reaches the shore and they offload him onto the shore, they say he has been saved. So it's, he is saved, and then he is being saved, and then he, he is safe or saved. I think that's a picture of the Christian life. We are saved by the Lord, but then we've lived the Christian life. And in that process, we are working for the kingdom of God to enhance the kingdom of God. And it's in the process of what we are being saved until we die and then we are saved completely, if you, if you would put it. Now, that I found that helpful. You may not find that helpful. Paul knows these Philippians are saved, but while they're on the way to the heavenly shore, they can do kings for the kingdom. It's not what they do that saves them. What they work at is to see the kingdom enhanced. So what about this fear and trembling? 
we're not saved where we're frightened and terror. I think the fear and trembling is talking about we are so inspired by the awe of God that it's almost like fear and trembling. But we are just so inspired by God and his purposes for our life. And it, Paul continue, finally finishes, for it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. I think probably I've used my time, but thank you all very much. Thank you, David. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he has given for us. Thank you for his death and for his life in his resurrection. We pray that you pour that into each of our lives this week. We don't find it easy to lay ourselves down. We don't find it easy to take the humble place. We don't find it easy to be selfless. We ask for you to help us to grow in doing those things this week, Lord. We ask you by your Holy Spirit to enter into our lives and to strengthen us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let your living word abide in me so richly as I abide in you. Let your living